Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, coming to you from Gadigal Land. This is ABC News Daily. Over the past year, we've looked at moments in pop culture that have had a big impact. There was Russell Brand, the accusations against him, his conspiracy theories and how he's made a huge name for himself outside the mainstream. He hints that he's come close to some kind of forbidden truth and he's being deliberately taken down. But first, Barbie has become the highest grossing movie ever by a female director. It drew crowds to the movies at a time when streaming seemed to have all but defeated cinema. So what does the frenzy over the film say about our culture, consumerism and feminism? We talked to TV and film critic Wenli Ma on why a movie about a plastic doll has got us all talking. And don't worry if you haven't seen it yet, although that's unlikely, there are no spoilers ahead. This story originally aired in July. Wenli Barbie, it's causing quite the stir. I was pretty amazed when I turned up to it and the cinema was just heaving with people and lots of them were wearing pink. There's a lot of hype around this movie. There is, and it's been hyped for months. Dude, we're going to be talking about this for years. Yeah. It's going to be, oh, my God, remember that Barbie movie that everyone sang songs for, all the cast? I was very much a Barbie kid, so... Yeah, very much excited to have some childhood nostalgia. Iconic. Yeah, we love Barbie. Yeah. Why do you think this is happening, Wenli? Why the hype? Why the excitement? Are we just all kind of feeding off each other at this point? Oh, absolutely. There is definitely the phenomenon where it's, you know, fear of missing out, your neighbour, your friends, they're all getting really excited. Why shouldn't you get excited too? I'm like, this actually looks really good and I'm willing to actually go to the cinema to see it, so... Yeah, very much excited to have some childhood nostalgia. And I do think still, even though we have come out of COVID for a while now, we have missed these sort of collective cultural moments. I mean, audiences are fragmenting across different platforms. Everyone's watching different shows at different times. It's really rare that we get to come together for something. And then to be part of it, it there's just an adrenaline, a high out of it. And it's been hyped for months, if not years. I remember the moment in uh, 2019 when Greta Gerwig, the director and co-writer, and her writing and life partner, Noah Baumbach, were announced as writing a script for a movie based on Barbie. It felt like what we were doing was making a movie that emulated kids playing and then we were also getting to be kids playing. Mm. And I remember thinking this was the most strange combination because Greta had at that point done Little Women, she had made mm. Lady Bird, and, uh, and I just thought, wow, that's you know, something that I would definitely be interested in because I hadn't thought about Barbie or considered Barbie for mm-hmm. a few decades and yes. I remember... Yeah, thinking after I'd been a kid, like, this is a really divisive and not helpful figure. So for them to then go, Greta Gerwig is going to make this movie, and I just thought if there was anyone who was going to be able to do a really interesting take on it, it would be her, and she did. Yes, yes, exactly. Let's talk a bit more about her in a moment and what she really set out to do in this film. No spoilers, of course. What culturally do you think it says about us, if anything? 
I mean, we still like things that are familiar. Yes. I mean, Barbie is a 60-something-year-old doll. Everyone has some sort of association with it. Uh, We like things that are pretty. I mean, let's, you know, not beat around the bush. It's pink. It's fun. It's an explosion of colour and jokes and song and dance. Those are all really cool things what we can get behind. We've had a lot of grimness. We've had a lot of dourness. Yes. This is actually just something that you can take a moment out from your life and go, I can invest in something that is just pure enjoyment and joy while knowing that it's actually not all that frivolous, that it is going to get into these other issues that are deeper and do speak to where we are. Mm, And it's breaking records, isn't it? Oh, it is breaking records. In Australia, in the first, uh, in the opening weekend, it made $21.5 million. That's almost, no, it is more than double the former biggest opening weekend of the year so far, which was the Super Mario Brothers movie, another sort of toy thing. Uh Greta Gerwig, she now holds the record for the biggest opening weekend for a female director, both in the US and in Australia and in a bunch of other territories around the world. And it's just like, yeah, if it's going to happen to someone, I think I'm really glad it's her. Mm-hmm. And, of course, our own Margot Robbie, a.k.a. Barbie. A.k.a. Barbie. Yeah. And Margot spearheaded this project from the beginning. It's her production company that made it. Uh, she chased after those rights and brought Greta on board. I thought it was a big and exciting opportunity. The word Barbie is just already globally recognised. It's... And people feel really strongly about Barbie. She was always, she was kind of omnipresent, I think, Mm -hmm. in nearly everyone's childhood. And that's just kind of an interesting place to start off with an audience. Okay, so it's a popular movie, there's no doubt about it, but it's also caused a lot of debate about whether this is actually a feminist film or a mega marketing tool for Barbie and its maker, Mattel. I think it is both, mm-hmm. and I think you can hold both of those truths in one hand. It is hard to separate Barbie out from the fact that it is made by this multinational company who are going to sell, you know, hundreds, probably 100 million more Barbie dolls. There is in the marketing campaign, which has been just so huge, you know, there are tie-ups with burger chains. You can get a pink burger, which looks oh horrific. Yes. You can get Barbie branded uh, electric toothbrushes, nail polish, makeup. But then the movie came out itself and the conversation's been able to shift mm. to actually it was worth the hype. I mean, not everyone loves it. Not everyone's going to love everything, but it seems like at least the consensus is that this is actually both a good movie and something that makes me feel warm and fuzzy, like a big hug. Okay, doesn't scream feminism, that sort of explanation. But, of course, Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig, they certainly argue it is. They spoke to Sarah Ferguson, the host of 7.30. Yeah, yeah I mean, well, it most certainly is a feminist film. Can you explain that? Why? How, how so? I, to me, it's like that's like one slice of the pie. Like, it's so... It's pretty big It's a, it's a big slice, but, like, I, I don't know. I, yes. I, I, no, I, know it, I also wouldn't yeah. call it a funny film because then yes, it discredits the yeah. fact that it's got it's a lot of heart film. and it's got a lot of emotion and it's got a lot of... Like, so what is feminist about this film in your view? To me, it is feminist. I mean, it is not a subtle 
uh, rendering of feminism. It's, it does actually bang you over the head with it a little bit, and for, mm. I appreciated that. There is a lot of discussion here about what it means to be a woman in 2023 and all the inherent contradictions in the expectations and what you're kind of up against. There's a lot of talk about patriarchy. There is an entire storyline that plays out about how that could manifest and how that does manifest. Uh, there are even scenes where Barbie shows up in the Mattel boardroom, which uh, Will Ferrell plays the fictional Mattel CEO, and she's like, I'm looking for the woman in charge. Mm. And he's like, I'm the CEO. She's like, what about your CFO? What about your you know, chief operating officer? And it is a boardroom full of men. Like it's not a subtle point, but it is a point where I see that scene and I just go, yes, yes, this is real life experience. These are things that I have encountered, I have seen, that has happened to me, to my friends, to my sister. And then you go, this is absolutely encapsulating what it feels like to be a woman in Western society in 2023. Mm. And for that message to kind of actually does sort of scream through, it, there are nuances in it that you realize later on as you're thinking about them, like that is, you know, a pithy joke or a, a very smart quip over here. And mm. it's doing a lot of things that is actually for a commercial movie, oddly subversive. And you've seen it twice. I've seen it twice. <laughs> okay. I must say, though, and as you mentioned before, when you think of Barbie, the toy, the doll, I've never, ever thought of that as being a feminist icon, ever. No. And I remember playing with Barbie when I was a kid and uh, and then, yeah, going into your teenage years and, and going, oh, Barbie's not feminist, it's sexist. It's placing all of these expectations on female bodies and what we can and can't be. And it is really only in the discussion around the Barbie movie where people have pointed out, it's like, well, you know, Barbie actually lives by herself. She usually has careers. She's not a mother. Like these are things that we've come to recognise as, you know, choices that women can now make and hopefully without the same onerous judgment that used to come with it. And I was like, oh, wow, I never thought about that. It's it's not playing house like happy families when you're a kid. It is showing this other option. I mean, it is still wrapped up in this idea that there are, of course, still uh, very unrealistic expectations in the actual physicality of Barbie. Yes, of course. And the movie takes some steps in showing different kinds of Barbies, both on based on race and body types. You know, there's a Barbie in a wheelchair. There is a transgender actor who plays one of the key Barbies as well. But I'm not sure that's necessarily reflected in the doll line. But having said that, I've not bought a Barbie doll in 30 years. So yes, I think they have come a little way. But I guess the question is just whether or not it's doing enough. And I'm not sure we should ever maybe expect a toy company to do enough on that point. Mm. A lot of it is symbolism, but symbolism can be helpful and important sometimes. Yeah, sure. When, Lee, there is the counter-argument, of course, that this movie has absolutely nothing to do with feminism at all, and there are actually some women who have taken quite offence to it. And I totally get that because I think feminism means different things mm. to different people. But I do also look at the fact that there are lots of sort of ultra right wing men's groups and uh, figures who are decrying it as, you know, this man hating movie mm. that no kid should ever be exposed to. When I go, that's kind of a victory. Yes. <laughs> who are these men? <laughs> well, I mean, Elon <laughs> Musk is not a fan. Neither was Piers Morgan. When I hear the word patriarchy, 
as often as it's said in this movie. Immediately, I'm like, here we go again. Right, okay, all right. So whether you think the Barbie film is a feminist film or the Barbie doll as a feminist icon, Barbie now is well and truly a word we're seeing a lot of, I mean a lot of. What does that say about us, do you think, and about pop culture? I think it does kind of allow us to look at these or revisit these icons that have been really formative to our own childhood and growing up and it does exist in the popular consciousness and every time there is a conversation where we do re-examine and rediscover these icons and go well this is what that thing meant to me when I was a kid and this is what it means to me now I mean that always sparks different conversations in the same way that the movie has sparked these conversations of what is feminism can what is this form of commercial mass market feminism that this movie is making it obviously has this power to delve deeper into these other conversations we're having about whether or not it is crass commercialism whether or not it's enough to be feminist and just wearing pink uh, as if you're declaring you know your philosophy just because you're in hot pink at a movie buying a ticket to see Barbie Mm. or if you know there are different conversations you can spark with your friends with your partners with your sons and with your friends sons about what it actually means to be a woman in 2023 and how does this weird little movie or now weird enormous movie (laughs) kind of play into it yeah okay and Wendley are you gonna go again tell me a third time Look, there may be a friend who said, if I can't find anyone else to go with, can you come with me? And I did not so begrudgingly say, of course I will. Wendley Ma is a TV and film critic and fill-in co-host of the Stop Everything podcast. Russell Brand built his name on the shock factor, using his sexual exploits as punchlines and making offensive jokes on live television and radio for years. It made him famous. Now, the comedian, presenter and actor has been accused of sexual assault and rape between 2006 and 2013 allegations he denies. We spoke to Danny DiPlacido, a senior contributor at Forbes magazine, on the accusations against Brand, his conspiracy theories and his massive social media fan base. This story originally aired in September. Hello there, you Awakening Wonders. Now, this isn't the usual type of video we make on this channel where we critique, attack and undermine the news in all its corruption, because in this story, I am the news. Danny, we're hearing there from Russell Brand. This is a video he put out on social media before the allegations against him had even been aired. But amidst this litany of astonishing, rather baroque attacks are some very serious allegations that I absolutely refute. And I want to come back to that video and unpack that a bit more soon with you. But on the allegations against him, these were uncovered after a really lengthy investigation by Channel 4 and The Times in the UK. Just remind me what these allegations are. They're pretty serious. So five women, I think by my count, have come forward to accuse Russell Brand of sexual assault, emotional abuse, controlling very manipulative behaviour, 
One of the women alleges that she dated Brand when she was 16 years old and she, in hindsight, feels like he groomed her. And one of the women has accused Brand of outright rape. And these allegations relate to a period from the early 2000s to 2013. And that was really when Brand was at the height of his fame. And, I mean, when you look back at it at that time... The things he was saying then, it was really extraordinary, wasn't it? Some of the clips, when you look back on them now, it's like, wow, (laughs) the things he got away with saying. I think people forget how much ambient sexism was in the air before Me Too. Mm. If you look back on old clips, not just of Russell Brand, they're kind of all over the place. You see TV hosts acting creepy and inappropriate towards the female celebrities that they're interviewing, especially in the UK. I don't know how it was in Australia. It was all about comedians pushing boundaries and seeing how far they could go. Uh, Offending people was kind of the point. And I think Russell Brand fit very neatly into that era. He sure did. He was on The Late Show with David Letterman in 2008. I'm so well-dressed, people think he must be gay. No, no, no. (laughs) Look at his wonderful haircut, he must be gay. (laughs) Look how sensitive and vulnerable he is, he must must be be gay. gay. That's right. That means women feel safe around me, Uh they trust me, then bang, pregnant, bang, pregnant, bang, pregnant. (laughs) Then there was that interview with the disgraced BBC presenter Jimmy Savile. It'd be very nice to meet you one day, Mr Jimmy Savile, just, you know. if you've got a sister, you could meet me by bringing her along. That was broadcast on the BBC in 2007, where they laugh as Russell Brand offers up a naked personal assistant to give Savile a massage. You could send her along to do some research. Would you like her to wear anything in in particular to Jimmy? I'd actually prefer her to wear nothing. Right, so you want... My assistant to meet you naked. Okay, well that's that's not going to be that's not going to be a problem. Certainly, that discussion with Jimmy Savile is incredibly disturbing in hindsight, considering how much of a monster Savile was. And he's even had encounters with well-known Australian journalists here, like Fifi Box on Channel Seven. Hello. Come on! <laughs> oh, oh my God, he's kissing me! Oh yeah. wow! Okay, everything's you, okay, isn't you, it? You, yes, you're very. You create handsome. a lot of heat. It seems extraordinary, doesn't it, that we really weren't complaining more loudly back then about the things he was saying. You know, he had this really big successful career, didn't he, with big media companies like Channel 4 and the BBC. He did. He was all over the place. And I think, I guess, at the time that was seen as part of his appeal, that he was, wasn't afraid to be kind of bold and to push the envelope. I, I do think a lot of what he said was written off as a joke. Right, Danny, so let's return to this video that he posted before the allegations were actually aired. It's actually this video being viewed almost 70 million times, 70 million. Plasticised into something criminal that I absolutely deny makes me question, is there another agenda at play? Particularly when we've seen coordinated media attacks before. In it, he really targets the mainstream media, doesn't he? First of all, he just denied all of the allegations outright. Mm-hmm. He, he emphasizes that he used to be very promiscuous. He claims that all of his sexual encounters were consensual. Now, during that time of promiscuity, the relationships I had were absolutely always consensual. I was always transparent about that then, almost too transparent. And it admits that he was kind of pre-warned in a letter from what he refers to as the mainstream media. So he, he very kind of clearly frames these allegations in this video as like... He hints that he's come close to some kind of forbidden truth and he's being deliberately taken down. 
he framed the allegations. He said there seems to be another agenda at play. He compared himself to Joe Rogan and said there was coordinated media attacks against Rogan. Uh, he said there was a seems to be a, uh, an effort to control his voice, pointed at the camera and kind of, you know, telling his audience that they are trying to control your voice, kind of bringing them in with him. Or at least it feels to me like there's a serious and concerted agenda to control these kind of spaces and these kind of voices. And I mean my voice along with your voice. Yeah, and he had some immediate support from really big names almost agreeing with him that there was some sort of agenda to destroy his success. You know, Elon Musk, Andrew Tate, Donald Trump Jr., they're all kind of backing him. Yeah, so I, I think the list of his supporters says a lot. You know, Andrew Tate, the guy has been charged with rape and human trafficking. He teaches his young followers to, you know, not to treat women well. You've got Elon Musk, who's been accused of sexual misconduct. He's taken a huge right-wing tilt lately. There's Tucker Carlson, a huge voice on Fox News for years. You've got Alex Jones, huge conspiracy theorist. All these kind of right-wing figures are instantly kind of jumping on and kind of agreeing with Russell Brand's definition that he was kind of taken down deliberately because he had come close to this supposed truth. Yes, some sort of truth. Okay, so let's have a look further then, Danny, at this response to these allegations from Russell Brand that the mainstream media is after him. And to understand that, we need to understand that he has a huge following on social media, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, Russell Brand has 6.6 million on YouTube alone. On Twitter, he's got more than 11 million. He's still got a a TikTok channel. He's got 2.3 on there. So, you know, he's got, you know, millions of followers all spread around. YouTube seems to be his big one. And he's made a shift, hasn't he, over maybe the past nine years from the mainstream media, so the BBC, which he actually had to resign from because of another controversy, from Channel 4, that that sort of mainstream media, to YouTube, to Instagram. And now he's really a voice against mainstream media. Just explain what's he up to there. Yeah, well, kind of, you know, I mean... He's not on television really anymore, but I I would make the argument if you are a YouTuber with millions of followers, I don't see why that's not mainstream media. This is how people consume content nowadays. So the fact that he's always so keen to to establish himself as outside of the mainstream, I just, I don't agree with that definition. The way he kind of postures against the mainstream is by, he, he makes a lot of correct assessments about the state of the world. And he kind of hijacks Marxist ideas but he turns it into like a vague kind of anti-establishment posturing mm-hmm. with no class analysis. Industrialized me. I am pro-freedom. I am pro you making your own choices for your family and your diet. And he just kind of says we should do something about this. We should do something about the inequalities of the world, of government control and overreach, of uh, the bad food we eat. Like things that everyone can agree with. And then he kind of vaguely hints at solutions but doesn't really give any and then spends most of his time amplifying kind of far-right conspiracy theories, interviewing like big right-wing figures. So he's kind of doing this like half-assed leftism 
but really it's just repackaged, you know, YouTube conservatism. Why don't we give centralized authority to some lab-grown meat, lab-grown fruit, patented seeds, unelected powerful entities that have been half-regulated by other unelected entities that they also fund? This seems to me to be a further advance of globalism that's plainly taken us in the wrong direction. Personally, I always kind of got the impression Russell Brand believes in nothing, and then he kind of leans into what he thinks his audience wants to hear him say. Police, Danny, are now investigating some allegations and more women have actually come forward with complaints. His former employees, the BBC and Channel 4, they've been under pressure too, haven't they? They've had to take some action. That's right. I I saw that um, there's been an investigation within the BBC of how all this conduct was handled. I saw that TikTok channel might be on the way to demonetization, but I'm not 100% sure if that will happen. Mm Mm-hmm. So we'll see. I don't really know. I don't know. I think Russell Brand can kind of hang on. Right. Especially because he's not been banned from YouTube. Right. He's not been banned from YouTube, but YouTube has cut him off financially. And some of his live shows have been postponed. So it's costing him in some way, isn't it? Yeah, it's costing him. I mean, I think he can afford it. But it doesn't really matter if YouTube cuts him off financially. He's He's got more than 6 million subscribers on there. That's a pretty broad reach. So really, he just needs YouTube to communicate to his audience, to ask them for money, to ask them to donate to him directly. He's on Rumble too, which is an alternative YouTube rival, which is much Mm -hmm. more uh, relaxed when it comes to content moderation. Russell Brand, I believe, has about 1.6 million followers on Rumble. So he's still going to be around, especially if YouTube doesn't ban him, which I don't... So far, they've said that his content is not harmful. Right. But if he's there, he can still, he can make money from his crowd. He can still be relevant. So despite accusations of problematic behaviour and different controversies over many years, Russell Brand still has a strong fan base. Danny, what does this all say about our culture, I think, about his enduring popularity on these social media platforms, what does it tell us? It says a lot about how divided people are when it comes to the social norms changing. A lot of people have, have kind of rejected efforts to be more, you know, inclusive. The fact that, you know, people like Brand can frame themselves as a victim of a conspiracy and being silenced, that's pretty dangerous. There's a possibility that he will stay and continue to be an influencer in some form or another. I think it really comes down to whether YouTube bans him or not. Danny D. Placido is a senior contributor at Forbes magazine. If this episode has raised any issues for you, you can call 1-800-RESPECT. During 2023, we took breaks from the big news stories to scrutinise pop culture moments on ABC News Daily. If you like these episodes, you'd also like the episode Swiftonomics, The Power of Taylor Swift, where we spoke to Serona Elton, the director of the music industry program at the University of Miami. Here's a teaser. Swiftonomics offers up a case study on how supply and demand and something called 
price elasticity, which is very, you know, economic term, but how mm. all these economic things work in the context of uh, something people are really passionate about, like buying a ticket to see Taylor. And, and it includes looking at the knock-on effect, the economic impact that's being felt in lots of ways including things like increases in travel and tourism in cities where fans are traveling to for her shows, right? So it's not just the economic impact of the ticket sale itself, but all of the economic impact from mm. from the shows, for example. And so it's a study of the economic impact of her professional activities, and they are having a significant and <laughs> newsworthy impact. I saw that one study estimated that two swift performances in Colorado in July could actually boost GDP by $140 million. Amazing. It is amazing because if you've been to a big concert at a big arena, you understand all of the things that go along with that. So whether that's public transportation to get there, it's parking, it's people paying for food and drinks and, you know, going to local businesses before, after the show for dinner, perhaps. It's people flying to these cities and booking hotel rooms. And so the economic impact of an event of the scale that we're talking about really can affect the entire business district around where that concert takes place. As treasurer, will you be happy to see this Tay-Tay economic boost <laughs> next year? <laughs> Well, I'm really pleased that she's coming. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a huge deal. Uh, the, the reality is that Taylor Swift's coming to Sydney is fantastic for New South Wales. Many people are currently trying to get tickets. A lot of them won't do that. We hope they shake it off. And none of this is really by accident, is it? She's made some pretty significant business decisions along the way, including taking a stand against music giants like Spotify and Apple Music over royalties. Yes, um, none of this is by accident. You know, ultimately what we're, we're seeing here is an incredibly driven, talented and smart woman having a dream of what her career could be, the impact she could have, and then making it a reality and, and taking it even beyond her own wildest dreams. You can find that episode from October on the ABC Listen app. Just search ABC News Daily. It's in the feed. That's it for this special episode of ABC News Daily. The podcast will be back with new episodes daily from the 29th of January. Follow the show on the ABC Listen app.